0: The best way to put it in terms of posture, your best posture is your next posture, which effectively means just continue to move. No posture is inherently bad. But if you stay in one posture for a long period of time, and everyone does this, if you stay in a posture for a long period of time, you might get a little bit sore or a niggly. Just change it. It's kind of that simple. We were designed to crawl, run, throw, jump, all these type of things. We weren't designed to kind of just sit down for eight hours in one spot on a computer. So you might want to break that up by standing, going for a walk, doing some exercise during the middle of the day before you get back to the computer or something like that.
1: Kia ora, friends, welcome back to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast. That was Andrew Wilde, owner of Wild Physio Fitness. And on today's show, we're tackling back pain, posture, technique, the role of genetics in sport, and a whole bunch more. If you've ever been in a position where you're dealing with a niggle or perhaps a full injury, I know how frustrating this can be. But if you're switched on, you'll go and see a physio to take a deeper look into what what's actually going on and get you back to doing what you love ASAP. But how do you know which physio is actually good to approach? Like any industry, there are great practitioners and there are some poor practitioners. I wanted to bring Andrew on someone I met back in 2018 at the first Ultimate Evidence-Based Conference in uh, Melbourne run by the JPS Health and Fitness crew to provide some insights, some perspective and some practical take-homes so you can feel better equipped at knowing who to trust. This episode was a super insightful conversation and I had so much more I wanted to discuss with Andrew so no doubt I'll bring him on for a part two in the future. But before we jump in as a quick intro My name is Jackson Burden, I'm a personal trainer, nutritionist and gym owner here in New Zealand and this show centers on bringing vegans and plant-focused eaters evidence-based and importantly nuanced information on training, nutrition and overall health and well-being. If you enjoy this one, if you enjoy this episode, be sure to hit that subscribe button and take a look back through some of the back catalogue, I'm sure you'll find some episodes of interest in there. Now, one final point of attention before we get started, Uh, Andrew, let me know after recording that during the first section of this podcast, when mentioning back pain and activation deficits and hypertrophy, he actually meant to say atrophy, so I didn't want to get you guys mixed up with those two words, hypertrophy meaning the growth and accumulation of muscle mass and atrophy meaning the decline of muscle mass. So when you're listening to that session, just swap those words out and uh, you'll get the full understanding of what Andrew was alluding to in that section. Okay, let's get Andrew in. Here's episode 45 of the Vegan Body Coach Podcast with Andrew Wild. Initially, I wanted to Preface this conversation just by saying, "Hey, look, we haven't had a physiotherapist uh, on the podcast yet, or chatted about anything to do with rehab or uh, injury so far." So, I really wanted to get you on as someone I've already met, and and um, you know, someone that I value your opinion and your uh, perspective on things. And even by following your content, it's pretty plain to see that you have a different approach to, um, say, a lot of the physios that. You know, the general population would go to see. Even me, as a gym owner, um, dealing with clients, you know, on a regular basis that have um, injuries or niggles, and it's like, okay, cool, go see a physio. But at the same time, it's not my warehouse, my <laughs> wheelhouse. So, how am I to know whether that physiotherapist is, um, you know, going to put them in the right direction or not? And I think just like anything to do with. You know, my my area of nutrition or training, there's going to be great practitioners and there's going to be, you know, less than great practitioners uh, in the same industry. So it's hard for me as a coach and, of course, the client or the general population to kind of know who to trust, who to look for, um, and, you know, what's going to actually help them at the end of the day. So I wanted to get you on, Andrew, to help us break some of that down, maybe cover some myths and misconceptions around this particular industry. Um, but maybe to kick it off, mate, how did you get into this industry of kind of rehab and, and physiotherapy and t- to where you are
0: now with your um, with your business? Honored to be the first physio, so thanks for having me on. <laughs> Um, so my journey started when I was an adolescent, I was injured a lot as a young athlete. So I played cricket, Aussie rules, golf, tennis. I did, I sort of played every sport known to man because I grew up in a small country town and that's kind of all we did. So I got injured a lot as an adolescent. So I was always at the physio. So that was kind of the catalyst why I went down the route of doing physio at university. I knew I wanted to do something in health. And I wasn't sure what, and physio seemed like a good fit because of the sport that I was playing, combined with the fact that I had exposure, combined with I wanted to do something in health. So that's why I started in um, at physio, and I loved it when I started at university. And then since I finished university, I worked in a variety of different clinics, and now I run Wild Physio Fitness, my business in Neutral Bay here in Sydney, and it's been up and running for about four and a half years now, and we focus on. Physiotherapy, strength and conditioning services, and we try and merge the fields of strength and conditioning and physio.
1: Yeah, awesome, man. So you obviously got into this industry purely based on the fact that you had experienced a lot of injuries and you obviously had some level of interest in kind of understanding the the finer points of that.
0: Yeah, for sure. I had stress fractures in my back when I was 16, 17, 18, sort of three years of running, and it kind of ruined a lot of the football I was playing. I missed a heap of football in those really crucial years, and um, it was frustrating. And when I was going through it, I thought that there was a better way because I was going to these physios, and a lot of them were saying that you need to stronger or build up your core and all this sort of stuff and it didn't make sense to me you know they're teaching me and we'll probably dive into this in a sec the core activation stuff and the the crap behind that core theory um and I'm doing all these things on my back you know switching on my core and I'm like how is this going to help I was like questioning why and then we went then I went to uni and then we're getting taught this stuff so mm-hmm. we'll delve further into it in a sec but it I went through multiple physios until I found a physio that really helped me and it was really basic advice it was load management build up general strength in the gym Um, and the biggest thing was load management because I was playing so much sport it was just a matter of okay well I need to peel back a little bit of the stuff that I was doing and um, manage my load a little bit better and then I can get back on the park but the other thing about it is I was in this big growth phase where I was going up you know I'd A lot of your listeners might not know AFL, but I was a rover sort of sentiment, so I was quite small, and then I went up, and I ended up being about 6'3", and more of a key forward. So, I was in this big growth phase when I was also playing a heap of sports, so hence why I had multiple issues with stress fractures, et cetera. Mm. And it took that one physio to kind of really spike my interest in becoming a physio, Mm -hmm. and that it kind of was born from there.
1: Yeah, and so your own ability to, I guess, figure out what's actually going to work for you, did that allow you to continue on with your sporting career, or was that something you kind of parked?
0: Uh, look, I would have loved to continue to play football, but I had to retire because of concussion when I had just turned 20, so oh, wow. um, football wasn't it for me. Um, I loved it. It was the game that I wanted to continue to play, and I wanted to play it at the highest level possible. Um, so since then, I've played a lot of golf, a bit of tennis. I've got back into cricket here and there over the years and currently still just playing a lot of golf and tennis. Cool. Um, still active in the gym, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I'm 34, but in an ideal world, mate, if I could still be playing footy, I probably would be.
1: Yeah, 100%. So you mentioned there that at uni they were teaching you very similar things that, you know, those original physios had kind of prescribed to you and you saw you know some level of discrepancy there or some issue there with what they were teaching um how did you find that process of going through union and i guess what were some of the the big maybe missing components that you see as to what has been taught and maybe what has been prescribed to general population like what are we missing here
0: yeah so When I was going through that period, when I was injured, I was getting taught these core exercises where I had to switch on my transversus abdominis, which is one of the deep core muscles. And this idea was born in the mid to late 90s when there was a professor um, at the University of Queensland, Paul Hodges, that did a study where he looked at a group of people that had back pain versus a group that didn't and used different arm movements to work out what was their core activation like with these different arm movements? And he found that it was slightly delayed with the people that had back pain. Now, from this, then this notion of core activation was born. And But now what we know is there's no supporting evidence at all for the basic assumption that those low back pain, those with low back pain have activation deficits or atrophy of the core muscles like the transversus abdominis or multifidus. So, I got to university thinking that, you know, we'd get taught some strength and conditioning stuff, be in the gym and all this. And we're lying on our backs doing core activation exercises, trying to switch on our TA and our multifidus and these small muscles. And we're using like ultrasound guided, um, we're using um, ultrasound to see this. And like, I'm struggling with it. (laughs) I couldn't do it. A lot of us couldn't do it. And like, I'm just thinking if I can't do it and I'm a pretty good athlete and there were a lot of other good athletes there, they can't actively isolate these muscles. It doesn't really make that much sense. Mm. And I was really strong and fit and I was just kind of tearing my hair out thinking this tiny little muscle isn't the secret here. Mm. And I think we're better than this and I think – A lot of people would blame the fact that someone had back pain back then, or even now there's still clinicians doing this, on the fact that the person has a quote-unquote weak core. Now, just because you have an activation deficit or muscle hypertrophy, that doesn't necessarily mean it was the cause. Okay? So an activation deficit or muscle hypertrophy is more likely to be the result of the pain rather than the cause. Does that make sense? Yep. So, people will have a reduction potentially in these studies that they've done purely because they do have back pain. Now, some of the research that we have, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, and this is uh, via a lot of the work that Peter O'Sullivan has done, a lot of the people that have back pain actually have a very strong core and back purely because they're guarding all the time. So, their muscle tissue is on all the time trying to protect their back trying to protect themselves and this may be because they're trying to guard to try and protect the back it may be because they're being told to sit upright and stay in a really nice posture or they're being told to tense their core to try and help themselves but often it's just making them worse
1: Mm.
0: so analogy i often use and is if someone walks around all day and they clench their fist as hard as they possibly can all day, and then at the end of the day they try and write something or they try and pick up something or throw something, it'd be really hard because your muscles in your forearm are tired. So it's the same when it comes to the back pain side of things. I see this all the time. People come in and they're just guarded, they're grabbing with all their muscle tissue. Someone's told them they've got a weak core. And the poor muscles, they're just tired. Mm they're so bloody tired at the end of the day that when they do something basic like pick up their kid or do their shoelaces or something like that, because the muscle's tired, they get a little bit of a a spasm or whatever it is and then they get pain. So, often what I'm doing is I'm trying to reverse these beliefs that people have to try and get them to relax the muscles when they don't need them. Mm. And then when they need them, say, for instance, deadlifting or something like that, they switch on. But we don't need to actively think about switching our back muscles on when we're picking something up. It's just going to happen. So I think the whole core notion, it frustrates me that we're still even talking about this because it's been debunked by the science. You know, there's no supporting evidence at all that core activation exercises are better than anything else. Mm. In terms of if someone has back pain, you can choose any exercise and it's going to probably be effective the caveat here is some people do get better with core exercises (laughs) yeah. if they just do core exercises, but it's not because of the core exercises getting them stronger or something within the core. They might have greater self-efficacy. They might just be a little bit more confident. They're starting to move again and exercise again. So it's not the core exercises themselves. Yeah.
1: So, so if we like, I guess with that whole area, when you see someone in your clinic and they come in and they have an issue, um, say it's back pain, say it's whatever, and and then we can kind of maybe reverse engineer this. But like, what are like some of the main factors that would actually influence that injury in the first place? Like, say they do have sore a sore back and they and they think they've got a core uh, a core deficit or whatever. Um, what would you say are like the main influences that, I guess, get someone to being injured in the first place? And then maybe we can cover off like how you would actually address that particular situation.
0: Yeah, so a lot of people think it's just because of something structural and that's the reason why they've got pain. But with the biopsychosocial model that we have now, it is a lot more detailed and complex than that. So you can have no damage and have pain. Okay. So, and vice versa. So, we know that it's not just because of changes within tissue. Right. So, we need a factor in and I like to use an analogy, often the cup analogy. So, if we overflow this cup that we've got with too much stuff, we're putting a lot of stuff into the cup, then potentially someone would get pain and things that go into the cup would include stress, sleep, Fear, previous experience, tissue, training, etc. Right. So, if we consistently add more and more into this cup, it can potentially overflow and someone may get pain if it exceeds their tolerance. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people, when they do get pain, what they do is they stop and their cup gets smaller. So, their tolerance or their resiliency levels come down and then they can overflow the cup. A little bit quicker. So what we're trying to do with uh, exercise and strength training and these type of things is try and build a bigger cup. The other thing that we can do is remove stuff out of the cup. So stress and sleep play a massive, massive part here. So often people will get injured when things are just really busy in their life. You know, they've got, I don't know, multiple children that there's a lot happening. Work's really stressful. They're getting five hours sleep rather than they're normally used to getting eight or something like that. But they're still trying to train really hard in the gym. So the system can only cope with so much work so framing this to clients is really important to for them to understand that it's not just about their body and the physical structures within their body it's more it's about everything the biopsychosocial model which includes everything i was just discussing so your bio is the physiological pathology the psychological is your emotions behaviors etc social is your socio-economic status um cultural factors like work family etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's looking at the individual and not just looking at the specific spot being like it's because of this in your back that's why you have pain it's it's more multifactorial than that
1: yeah Uh, You can correct me if I'm wrong here, Andrew, but I'm almost visualizing like two distinct groups of people. Um, And, you know, one group would be a lot of the people listening to this podcast who are already in the gym training. They probably train quite hard and maybe they are experiencing, you know, somewhat regular injuries or niggles as a result of like hard training. And then I have another group in my mind of – your general population who never have trained in their life and they're just going about their their day-to-day life and they experience some kind of injury um, just doing normal day-to-day things. Like maybe they they fall down the stairs or they pick something up and they kind of strain something. Um, I'd love to almost like separate those two and get your opinion on, you know, what I guess would be the approach for each of those considering this biopsycho model that you've just – Describe to us you know that that individual who is not training already in the gym with the first point of call being going hey you need to start some strength training and maybe for the people that are already training in the gym and they're experiencing some niggles well then it's a case of like okay well how do we appropriately adjust your training to to reduce you know some of those things coming into the cup as you mentioned
0: yeah well someone that isn't training and they're not exercising at all the first thing that we would do is try and get them to exercise a little bit more Mm. So something so simple like just some walking, you know, a lot of people are averaging, you know, two to 4,000 steps a day if they're doing desk jobs, you know, getting them to try and double that up to closer to 8,000 plus would be nice. So getting them to start walking a little bit more and then look, ideally, yeah, get them to strength train because we know all of the great benefits that we're getting with the strength training. So the idea of that is we're building up the resiliency and the tolerance of tissue so it can cope with day-to-day activity so things become a little bit easier. So say, for instance, they're picking up their kid and the kid's 10 kilos, as an example, and, but that has given them grief in the past. If we build up their deadlifting or their squatting or whatever it is and we build it up to, say, 60, 70, 80 kilos or more, all of a sudden them picking up the child is relatively easy compared to what they do in the gym. So a good way to think of it is their cup's quite small. We're trying to build up their cup a little bit so it's bigger and then it won't overflow as quickly. So with that also we're building up that tissue tolerance. Um, So that's often injury is going to happen with people that are either doing nothing or they haven't done much for a long period of time or someone's exceeding their tolerance by doing too much or exceeding their tolerance in a short period of time, and that's classic of runners. You know, runners during COVID, you know, they went from doing maybe 10K a week and then they can't go to a gym and then all of a sudden they go to 30Ks and they've exceeded their tolerance. They've just done too much too soon. So if someone comes in that's an exercise junkie, you know, they're doing heaps of stuff every week, well, load management is the king. We need a load manager. A lot of physios love to blame, you know, one part of the body for the reason why someone gets pain. You know, they will say you need to do this exercise or you need to strengthen your glutes or you need to strengthen your core or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, if you look at their their structure for the week, all you need to do is just change the load. Right. You load need a load manage. So I often go through with a client, I'll write down on a piece of paper Monday through to Sunday and I'll put a.m., lunch, p.m. and I'll say write down everything that you do during the week and where you do it and I'll look at it and, you know, some people are doing, say, four strength training sessions a week. They're doing four runs and then maybe a couple of bike or something like that Or, or more. They're playing some tennis as well. And all we need to do is probably just reduce it by 10, 20%, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. And then all of a sudden, we're just not overloading structures. Mm. And also, they're not as tired. (laughs) They're getting maybe a little bit more sleep and recovery. So then they can adequately recover from their next bout of exercise. Yeah. No, I love that approach. One thing that I
1: often think about and talk about with some of my friends is the potential genetic component to injury. And I'm not too sure, you know, if you have any thoughts on this, but even when I look at say high level CrossFit competitors, CrossFit games competitors, and I think to myself, well, you know, you know, we know the cream rises to the crop, right? So the the, the best genetically talented humans will be on that platform. But I also think with that level of training that they do, because there is so much volume, if you look at you know, the day-to-day training of a, a CrossFit Games athlete, uh, they're doing so much. I often think the people that arrive at the Games and successfully complete it are potentially the you know the genetic elite among us anyway, because they were able to get there without breaking down so much that, you know, they couldn't complete the sessions. I often think to myself, if I was trying to complete the amount of volume that they were doing, um, I know from previous experience that I would be having some serious issues very, very early. Um, So do you have any views on maybe the genetic component of injury?
0: Yeah, there's some genes that may increase one's susceptibility to certain injuries, but we need more research. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think, It's hard as well, even if we did know every single... Imagine you had a game, uh, rugby, right? You're from New Zealand. We'll go the All Blacks. If you had five guys that had susceptibility to a certain type of injury in that group, yeah, you might change what they do week to week within their training block and their program, but they're still going to have to play the game. It's not like we can modify the game based on their genetic makeup. So... Yeah. Yeah, like knowing that would be okay because you could maybe change training or gym work and that sort of stuff, but you can't change the game. So, we all know those people that are genetic freaks that never get injured that just play whatever sport they want and they're good at it or they never get injured. I was – I'm built like glass. Like I got injured all the time through my adolescence and – It was unlucky often. You know, a lot of the concussions I had was unlucky. But all you got to do is look at something like NFL. Like, if you ever go to an NFL game or you look at an NFL game, like, those guys are so big. It's ridiculous. Like, they're born to play NFL purely because they're just so freaking big. If you haven't won the genetic lottery, you are not going to play NFL. It's that simple and that's the argument behind the sport often is going to choose you rather than the other way around and I'm right. a good example of this. Like I'm, I was very tall and lanky through my adolescence. Prior to that, I was quite small but I was always quite lean and light. I played a few games of rugby league in union at school growing up in primary school and I hated it because I was small. I wasn't good at it. So, because I wasn't big and robust and I didn't like it, so I didn't play it. I played Aussie rules. It was a game that required a lot of running, a lot of skill, a lot of hand-eye coordination, this type of stuff. I was good at that game, so I liked it, so I kept playing it. Yeah. Same with cricket. I had good hand-eye and I liked playing cricket. I didn't like swimming. I wasn't as good a swimmer as I was, say, cricket or something like that, but I liked water polo because it was a ball, so my swimming – wasn't as good as a lot of people's but my ball skills were better than a lot of people's so i got away with the lack of swimming prowess that i had
1: right right right
0: so there there obviously is a genetic component here and you look at sprinters are a good example versus the marathon runners or long distance runners you know most of the people that have won or all of the people that have won a olympic gold medal in the hundred meters men's in the last, say, 40 years, right, have all got heritage effectively in West Africa. Right. Yeah, so the Jamaicans and, like, even Donovan Bailey in 96 was running for Canada and these type, they've got West African heritage versus the Ethiopians and the Kenyans, they're East African. They're really good at the longer distance stuff. So that's just a genetic – you can't – Like you can't turn an Ethiopian long-distance runner into a sprinter because they just don't have the necessary genetic makeup to be good at that and vice versa. It's the same when you look at the swimmers. Like the 100 metres in running or sprinting, they're all mostly black, yeah, Yeah. at the Olympics. But then you look at the 100 metres freestyle, they're mostly all white. Mm. Now, that's a physiological thing. It makes sense because most of the guys that are sprinting on the track, a lot of fast twitch fibres. They may have that West African heritage, but you look at how long a sprint takes on the track. It may take less than ten seconds, but then, which is very very anaerobic. But then you look at a hundred metre swimming race. You're looking at under a minute, but above forty seconds. Mm. So we're looking. It's very. It starts to become more aerobic, which then obviously plays into someone's hands that's more aerobic. So it's interesting when you look at all the different body shapes and types and everything at the Olympics because it kind of just feeds into that notion that the sport kind of chooses you, yeah. but it's based around the fact that someone's good at it. That's why they kind of choose it.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, and it's it's a great almost little side tangent there because I think, I think it's important for people to recognize that fact that your genetics do play a part in what you end up being good at. Um there is a physiological component that is outside of just pure um determination and grit and however much discipline you want to put into a sport. If you're not uh you know built flat sport, if you're not, you know, uh, if you don't have, you know, these these larger percentage of fast switch fibers to be a sprinter, you're not gonna be at the top, you can still do the sport and love it, but it probably won't be that enjoyable when you're continuously being crushed by everybody around you. So you kind of, you know, it's a, it's a case of like allowing people to, or, or encouraging people to choose a path that is more in line with kind of what they're born to do in a way. <laughs>
0: yeah. And it, it, I kind of get frustrated with this, the, the notion of, you know, you hear this quote all the time hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And it's yeah. fucking bullshit. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, to a point. Like if you had two people that had the same genetic makeup and one worked harder than the other, they would probably beat the, that person eventually. Yeah. But if someone's just genetically gifted versus not genetically gifted, like you can't mm-hmm. polish a turd. I know that's it. <laughs> <a, laughs> like you can't turn someone that has a like say they can run 11.2 in the 100 And they're 19 years of age and that's the fastest they've ever run. They're not going to make the Olympics. No chance. Zero chance. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. So, like, if you want to get better at sport, yeah, you can work hard. But if you really want to get better at sport, choose better parents. But you can't do that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and just that, I guess at some
1: point in an individual's life, they have to decide, hey, look, maybe this isn't the sport that takes me to the top, but that's okay. You know, you can still enjoy doing what you love to do. Like, in my, like, as a personal example, I've always loved training like a bodybuilder, but my response hasn't been that of a, Genetic elite bodybuilder, you know what I mean. It's been more of an average response to that type of training, and it's still enjoyable for me, and I still love the progression and the and the daily toils of going into the gym and training. Um, but recognizing early on that I'm made different to that guy over there, you know, and that we all are on our individual journeys, um, and that's why I think you know the, the the huge importance of just you know staying in your own lane and focusing on what you're doing, and um, you know avoiding the comparison trap because the reality is. Um, an individuals' genetics do play a large role in their response oh, from training.
0: Massive. And I think you've got to also factor in a lot of people are on steroids. Yeah. You know, like people online, are comp- they're comparing themselves to these people that are genetically gifted combined with the fact that they're on the juice. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. You know, you... Your genetic makeup will determine a lot of what you can and can't do in terms of your physical capabilities and, you know, even your um, architecture of your muscle tissue, you can't change that. It's the the architecture. Like a calf muscle is a good example. If you've got a really high, if you've got a really long Achilles tendon and your calf muscle, your gastroc starts really quite high closer to your knee, your ability to grow a bigger calf, you're already – on the backbone, like you're playing catch up with everyone else that has a gastroc that starts a little lower. Yeah. On that classic example, I was a jumper, you know, I like did, did AFL, which is a lot of jumping based stuff I did high jump and I've got a very long Achilles tendon, which is elastic, which is great. Right. But in terms of muscle bulk, it's harder to get a bigger calf because I've just yes. got a really high, um, a high start of my gastroc. So, um, it's the same thing with like a peak of a bicep. You see some of these bodybuilders, you know, they have this beautiful peak of a bicep and that is the architecture. It's just, you know, that's from mum and dad. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. You know, that's just a gift. You know, I've got a good story about this actually. When I was about, say, about five or six, I was really enjoying going to gymnastics in Wagga where I was growing up and we'd go on, you know, jump on the trampoline and do flips and all this sort of stuff and get on the all the gym equipment. And I'm talking gymnastics here. And my dad hadn't picked me up yet, and I wanted to keep going. And finally, dad came and picked me up the first time after mum had been picking me up for months and months and months. And dad picked me up, and dad was about six one back then. And I remember the coach effectively said to dad, "I oh, don't bother bringing Andrew anymore because he's going to be too tall." Oh, I see. That's a good example. Right. I was I would have been the worst gymnast. I'm six yeah. three, long levers. If you walk into a a gym like a gymnastics gym all yep. the guys are short
1: yeah
0: you're not going to survive at six yeah, three
1: totally.
0: so so he
1: the uh, coach recognized that early on like i've seen your dad
0: <laughs> yeah it's like mum's like five eight and then yep. dad's you know six one the chances of me being five foot five to five foot eight is very slim yeah so um you know i would have but the thing is I would have eventually got to that point where I'd been trying against these other athletes and I yeah. would have sucked. Yeah. So I would for have sure. been like no nah, I'm not doing this. I'm going to go to a different sport.
1: Yeah yeah it's almost important for parents to realize early like okay like what is my kid actually going to be genetically like predisposed to to give them the best chance of like putting the most amount of time into that particular sport because you know you you spending your childhood doing gymnastics only to realize at like 14 when you started to grow that it wasn't going to work for you it's like well you could have been spending that time playing golf you know what i mean
0: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly exactly and that's That's the beauty of sport. There are so many different sports and there's sports for every body shape. So, and you can try heaps of different sports and see whether it works out, like netball or basketball. Like if you're five foot five or five foot six, you're not going to make it. Yeah. As a woman. And you're probably not going to make an under six foot in basketball if you're a guy. Like it's very unlikely. So, um Look, it's an interesting conversation. I like this yeah. conversation around this because a lot of people think that you can just hard, like work as hard as possible and you become a really good athlete, but it's just not the case. You've got to have gifts to start yeah. with most of the time.
1: Yeah, 100%. And it's it's just something that I talk about a lot with clients is uh, the importance of just enjoying what you do. Because like, most of the people I will work with and most of the people probably you, you deal with are not people seeking um, elite level of competition, but they do want to create a lifestyle that improves their health and allows them to, to move and and function. Uh, but in order to do that, they need to find movement that they enjoy doing so that they can, you know, adhere to that. They can do that on a regular basis. They can be consistent with that training. Um, so I think the enjoyment of the journey of the process is, is incredibly important. You know, like for myself, I, like I said, I love to do the bodybuilding type training, but at the same time, I... Love to run with my dog, and I like to, you know, enter Spartan races and do these types of things. If I wanted to be purely in the gym, just lifting all the time, then I wouldn't be doing all these other things. But at the same time, I want to enjoy what I'm doing, so it's a combination of things for me. Um, knowing that maybe I won't be the best at any one of those things, but I'll be able to enjoy the process of of movement and some level of competition and you know things to work towards so i do think that's a a huge component for most of our listeners as well as just finding something that really um that gets you gets you in there gets you moving whether it's hiking whether it's golf whether it's lifting weights you know
0: yeah for sure and sustainability is the number one thing when it comes to an exercise plan as long as you can see yourself continuing to do that long term you know go for it that's what we want Um, so hobbies and different exercises and or exercise types or sports and that sort of thing are really good. And that's why I love sport. You know, sport is just so good because it keeps you active. And often a lot of people, they don't like going to the gym or they don't like just going for a run because it's boring. Mm. But then if you, it's boring for a lot of people, but if you then get them to play tennis regularly or something like that, well, it's fun and they don't feel like they're exercising. Yeah. Um, it's in a fun environment, it's social. That's why hiking is often a good one. A lot of people in their sort of later stage in life, you know, 50 plus, they start to get into hiking because it's very social because you can talk to your friend while you're hiking and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's just find something that you love and enjoy and keep doing it forever. Love and it. Um, and you can keep – and ideally – this is why I love golf is because you can play golf until you die just about. You know, I played yeah. golf the other day with a guy that was 85, you yeah, know. cool. So um, find something you can continue forever. And even if you can't continue something forever, like a football, try and replace it. Yeah.
1: I love it, man. Well, I did want to circle back, Andrew, just to some, maybe, maybe we can cover off some of those common injuries or maybe misconceptions that you would hear in your clinic. And we've kind of touched a little bit on the back pain one already. Like people, they come in, they have back pain. Well, I get this all the time people in the gym oh i've got a sore back like i need to strengthen my core or often that's on a consultation form i want to strengthen my core and i'm like i always go well, what do you want to strengthen your core for like you know you're just saying that because you think you have a weak core like everybody thinks they have a weak core but i'm also just like what makes you think your core is weak are you like just crumbling over every day when you like go to stand up or get out of bed like your core's probably strong enough you know what i mean um so like i guess i guess the 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 question is If it's not a weak core, what is actually causing that back pain?
0: Yeah, it's so multifactorial, as we kind of discussed before, you know, maybe the sleep, the stress, all these type of things. So it just depends on the person. But when it comes to the core side of things, like I have no problem with people doing core exercises. I do core exercises. I do ab rollouts and sit-ups are fine and, you know, all these exercises are great. And being fit and strong is very different to being tense and guarded. I love that quote, being tense and guarded and holding everything in all the time and like that fist analogy, just keeping everything guarded all the time is not a good idea. You want to let things go. And I think the notion of having a flat stomach and looking ripped, especially with this whole social media world we live in now, a lot of people are trying to brace and tense and flatten their tummy out all the time, which is just kind of making things worse. And people come in and they're trying to hold themselves perfectly (laughs) and they're all rigid, you know. And there's nothing wrong with all these core exercises, but as long as we are letting the muscles relax when we don't need them, yep. that being, you know, we don't really need our core right now while you and I are chatting, yeah? Our muscles are kind of relaxed. Yeah. My tummy's protruding, I yeah. suppose you'd put it. You know, we don't need to be tensing up. And the other thing is the the notion that posture is very important in the cause of one's pain is ridiculous it's been debunked there is no posture that is correlated with pain the best way to put it in terms of posture your best posture is your next posture which effectively means just continue to move Mm. no posture is inherently bad but if you stay in one posture for a long period of time and everyone does this if you stay in a posture for a long period of time you might get a little bit sore or niggly just change it It's kind of that simple. We were designed to crawl, run, throw, jump, all these type of things. We weren't designed to kind of just sit down for eight hours in one spot on a computer. So, you might want to break that up by standing, going for a walk, doing some exercise during the middle of the day before you get back to the computer or something like that. So breaking up or debunking those myths of the core and posture are very powerful when it comes to someone with back pain because then they know that I can relax these muscles. I can let things go. I can sit however I want. You can sit slouched for a period of time, then sit on the couch or you can put your leg up behind your head. It doesn't really matter as long as you're changing it regularly. That is the secret. And, Everyone's heard it from their mom or their dad or someone like stand up straight and sit up straight and all this. You don't need to. You can just change your posture regularly and that often helps. And I've helped hundreds of people over the years, thousands of people, when I've just said to them, throw that stuff out the window. You don't need it. You don't need to tense your core up. You don't need to protect everything. Let things go. Change your posture regularly and their back pain goes. Right. And the reason why? They're not clenching the fist all the time. Yeah, Muscles yeah. start to relax, and then we're building tolerance up with the strength training. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. So yeah. it's more complex than that, but that's kind of no, ba- the basic way you do it.
1: Yeah, it's almost like taking those those ideas of just allowing you to relax, changing your posture on a regular basis, then you know combining that with like you mentioned, just some some basic strength movements is probably going to do most of the work for you even if you never included a core exercise in like a quote-unquote core exercise in your strength program you're you're going to get probably the, would you say you get most of the benefit from just doing those few things
0: yeah so when it comes to the research with back pain the type of exercise looks like it doesn't really matter as long as someone does some exercise and kind of sticks to it yeah so if someone and if someone doesn't want to strength train or they don't want to do something, I don't make them do it. I will say strength training is a good option, but if they don't want to do it and they just want to get back into hiking and if they've had, you know, a few years off hiking, they just want to get back into hiking. That's known that's in terms of the research is not necessarily any better than us doing strength training. Gotcha. Yeah. So if someone likes doing something, I would just push them into starting to be more active and, like, I, everyone has a bit of a bias. I have a bias towards strength training because I just love the benefits. You've got so many great benefits from the strength training. Everyone sh- should strength train throughout their life to maintain muscle mass, bone mineral density, get so many great effects. Mm. Um, so, but when it comes to back pain, choose something that someone's going to stick to is the number one thing. Mm. And walking so simple, like short, rest, regular, brisk walks, is such a good option. Kind of yep. little movement, movement snacks. You would put them.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I guess that that even kind of leads into the whole posture thing. Because if you were, you know, taking your eight-hour day, which most people spend at their desk now, um, it's almost like if you have those little movement snacks, you're 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 getting out of those, you know, one posture uh, positions. And going out for a walk and then coming back, and you're almost, you know, you get the benefits of both. I think, you know, like your, just like your food environment is important for nutrition, it's like your work environment is probably quite important for your, your posture and your, you know, how your body is structured. Because, yeah, it is a case of like our work environment in the modern day is built around a a very, a very rigid. rigid, yeah, rigid. That's the word I'm looking at, very rigid posture. And I always, I always tell people, I'm like, look, you can get a standing desk, but if you're just standing all day in the same position, it's just as Mm. rigid as you were if you're like sitting all day in that same position. So like, if you've got a standing desk, how about you just put it up and down at regular intervals throughout the day so you're consistently changing? Or maybe you've got like one of those fancy chairs that have all the different things on it where you can like, spin it sideways you can like sit on it sideways or kneel on it or like slump on it or whatever so you're throughout your eight hour day you're like never in one position for like longer than an hour i think would you know from my opinion that would be amazing right
0: yeah uh, changing it regularly is a great idea for sure it's uh it makes it makes complete sense yeah and one thing as well a lot of people when they start an exercise journey they might start with say heaps of running or strength or they do both or whatever but then they They forget that they need to walk. (laughs) So, that walking is always a base of everything that I do with my clients is to make sure they're getting enough steps because the majority of people just really aren't getting enough steps. Um, so if we try and get them up close to that sort of 8,000 plus is a good place to be and anyone can do that. You know, you go for a short brisk walk in the morning, in the afternoon, a couple of incidental walks during the day and happy days, you know, you're going to get your 8,000 probably. Yeah. Um, so just because you're going to the gym, just because you're exercising doesn't mean that you can do no steps during the day and just stay at home and never leave. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's two other sort of main kind of common injuries that i see a lot of or even just common thoughts around uh people's bodies that i kind of hear all the time that i wanted to cover with you one of them being hamstring tightness um it's something i hear all of the time i even heard it on the weekend because we were doing some yoga and you know people say oh my hamstrings are so tight like this is a really hard posture for me um and i've always kind of like I've heard different perspectives on like tightness in a muscle and it's always been quite a confusing sort of area for me. And I think it probably confuses the general population even more. Um, <laughs> but you know, that the the notion is, Oh, I have a tight muscle, so I need to stretch it. So is this really an issue for people? Do you think and specifically in regards to the hamstrings um, and, and how can we actually influence, uh, you know, I guess, quote unquote tightness in the muscle?
0: Yeah. So, Often people wouldn't know they had tightness unless they tried to stretch their hamstring, say, for instance, or if a clinician told them that they've got a tight hamstring or whatever it is. Right. Um, You cannot influence the length of a muscle, okay? So if we stretch a hamstring, the muscle isn't lengthening. Even if you stretch it for weeks and weeks and months and months on end, the muscle doesn't change in terms of length. It stays the same. So we cannot do that. What we do see, if someone, say, does flexibility training on their hamstring for a week or two weeks or a month or whatever, we do see changes in flexibility, but they are changes in terms of the nervous system. So, it increases its tolerance to stretch. Now, if you stop doing the hamstring stretching, after a period of time, it will re- revert back to where it was prior to you starting that flexibility training. So the flexibility changes that we do see after someone does stretch, they don't hang around. They don't last. They may only last five to ten minutes and then they're gone. But if you consistently do it, you might see some changes, but it's a nervous system change where you've increased your tolerance to stretch.
1: Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Now,
0: hamstring tightness isn't necessarily a problem just because one has hamstring tightness doesn't increase their potential risk of certain injuries. It may or may not. Now, I am someone that, say, has, you know, tight hamstrings and a fair bit of neural tension, but I've always had that. So there is somewhat of a genetic component here. Some people just have more neural tightness than others. Um, the There is a caveat to this. Some people that may have, say, hamstring tightness from say nerve related issues down from their back down that is slightly different but if someone's just got sort of side to side hamstrings are both tight do we need to do too much about it probably not now in terms of the tightness the changes that I would like to see people make would be to then do something that eccentrically loads the hamstring in the gym like a Romanian deadlift or a Nordic or something like that because often people will find that that helps their quote-unquote flexibility more Mm. than just doing the flexibility training without the strength training. So, and if you have a look at the research with mobility training, so if someone did, if you had a group of people just do mobility training without the strength training and you had someone, a group of people doing the mobility training just through strength training. So, they're just strength training and then there's a mobility group. The mobility changes you would see across both groups would be very similar. Now, the strength training group would maybe even be better than the mobility group and it would hang around longer. You are are also influenced by your genetics here. So one's hip mobility, you cannot change one's hip mobility much purely because it's based around the hip um, anatomy. Now, the socket, some people have a shallower socket, some people have a deeper hip socket. So someone that has a shallow hip socket will typically have greater hip mobility. Someone that has a deeper hip socket will typically have less mobility purely because they're hitting end of range. Right through their hip so you can't move the bone it's the same with ankle mobility if someone's hitting end of range through their ankle because of bony anatomy you cannot move the bone unless we went in and shaved it so it's kind of futile doing all of these mobility drills when you're hitting end of range and the range of motion mobility changes that we're getting from strength training is enough right we may not need to do any mobility training or flexibility training Mm -hmm. because it's already happening with the gym the other thing about flexibility training, people always give up. It's boring. They don't do it. So as long as they're doing the strength training, then they're getting the great mobility changes. And you would have seen this probably anecdotally. Yeah, People come in and they start to do squats for the first time after ages of not exercising or they've never exercised in their life and they start off and they can do like a quarter squat. They feel really stiff. And then after months, all of a sudden, they can go into more of a sort of ass to grass squat and they can just get further. So, they're the mobility changes that you often see. Have we changed anatomy there? Have we changed anything structurally? No. What we've done is we increased the tolerance to those positions over time and that's a neurological change. Right.
1: Yeah. Does that right. make I sense? Love- yeah, no, I love that. I mean, it th- it's like... It's. I always talk about you know how someone looks when they, for example, squat is the best example. Is is less about kind of their flexibility or mobility and more about how their anatomy is structured because yeah. everyone's going to look very very different when they squat and and I I I cringe when I see trainers go up to someone and go oh you need to squat like this. And I'm like, no, 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 they need to squat how they're squatting because that's how they're structured. Like they have a completely different femur length than you and a torso length than you. They're going to squat way different. Um, and, you know, maybe like you're saying, like you could you could slowly over time through them doing those squatting patterns or even doing, you know, like you mentioned, some of those mobility drills, they could improve, like you said, maybe their tolerance to those positions and actually get into maybe a, a deeper position or, or whatever um but largely i think so much of of how someone looks in an exercise is more anatomical and like you said you can't really change that would you agree with that
0: yeah yeah anthropometrics are effectively how you build yeah, yeah. so you can't like if someone has more of a retroverted hip or they've got a deeper hip socket. A lot of people that are like that will maybe like their feet turned out a little bit more when they squat and they might want their feet a little bit wider. So I'll often, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, like in terms of squatting, like I'll just get people to do a few squats, play around with foot position, whether it's wider, more turned out, straight, um, up on a wedge, so heels elevated, may help them as well. Like I, I squat with my heels elevated because it, I can get down deeper because of my ankle mobility on my right side. Combined with it, just feels easier because I can stay more upright because I've got a very long torso. So it depends and it doesn't really matter. And in terms of technique in the gym, it's poorly correlated with one getting pain as well. We can lift with a variety of different techniques and it doesn't matter when it comes to someone getting pain or not. When it comes to performance, it's slightly different. So you may, get, you may squeeze the last little bit out of the lemon if you tighten one's performance up when it comes to a deadlift or a squat or something like that if they're a power lifter. So, um, technique for the layperson that are just getting in the gym—it doesn't matter that much as long as they're managing their load, their recovery, all that sort of stuff. That's more important. Um, obviously, you wouldn't want to be, you know, throwing around the weight really quickly or really, really slow because we know that if the tempo is really slow or really fast, maybe we're not getting as much tension, um, and tension is what we want when we're trying to build muscle. So. Um, technique normally is fine with most people. And a lot of people come in and to see me and they're like, how's my technique? I'm like, mate, or, <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Your technique is fine. We don't even need to worry about it. Yeah. So, um, that's something as well that annoys me online. There's all these technique gurus out there. The biomechanics
1: gurus yeah Yeah.
0: (laughs) like they're just overcomplicating everything yeah we have we live in a world where we have an obesity epidemic people aren't exercising enough they're not walking enough and then these guys and girls online are saying you need to do this squat like this or you need to do this row like this and if you're not doing it like this you're an idiot yeah that's just creating more and more barriers for people to not exercise because they're like oh shit i'm going to be that dickhead in the gym that's not doing it properly Mm -hmm. Like, we don't need that. We need people to, like, we need to be movement optimists and allow people to move however they want and give them the flexibility to move however they want in the gym and do what they want as well, you know. You don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to do this, you know. Choose something that you like and enjoy and stick with it. Yeah, That's the key. Sticking with it is the number one thing.
1: Yeah, it's huge. I I often think, like, you know, with clients that I work with online they'll send through a technique video for me to look at and oftentimes I'm working with brand new people going to the gym and I am trying to slowly work their positions say on their barbell squat or their deadlift into a position that's probably the most effective for them to lift the most amount of weight um but apart from that once that's kind of sorted and I'm like yep you're in a great position you're doing all those cues perfectly Um, I don't need to, I guess, get too intricate with like, Hey, your arm needs to be in this perfect, like 30 degree angle or, you know, anything like that where, you know, most of the time they send me videos. I'm like, yeah, that actually looks really good. Like you're, you're using good cadence. Um, you know, we're getting good stimulus to the muscle that we're actually trying to target here. Um, it doesn't need to be any better than that. And you know and then it can just take some stress off people for you know thinking that oh this has to be perfect well it doesn't actually have to be perfect your body is pretty resilient um and it will it will you know find a good way to lift this load um but yeah yeah i do agree man i think there's i think there's a lot of people trying to overcomplicate things these days um and the reality is yeah we just need to get more and more people training and doing it consistently over time just like you said
0: Yeah, they're trying to stay relevant. I think that's why they do it. And, you know, another good example is tempo. You know, like you and I have been in the gym long enough that if you're doing a really heavy squat or deadlift or bench or something like that and someone's programmed like 3010 or whatever it is, the tempo stuff, like no one's like counting it like one and (laughs) two and three. Like all you're trying to do is get the weight up off your chest if you're doing a bench press or something like that. And we know with the research with tempo – It's effectively irrelevant as long as the, as long as the weight is controlled. Right. You wouldn't want to go too slow or too fast, but most of the time people are going to lift it with fine tempo, especially women, because women will often do it a little bit slower than men. Men may go a little bit quick, depending on their goals, obviously. Um, If they've got more of a hypertrophy goal, we might want to slow it down a tiny bit. Um, If they've got more of a power goal, depending on what exercise they're doing or whatever, we might want to speed it up or keep it the same. Yes. So- I just think everyone, so many people online are just trying to stay relevant by creating, they want to create dependence so people rely on these people to make sure that they're doing the right thing in the gym because they're like a biomechanical expert or whatever or they're a tempo expert, you know. Right, Like just lift the bloody weight. You're going to most likely control it, manage your rest and recovery. Get close to failure on those lifts. You know, leave maybe one or two reps in the tank, maybe three if it's a bigger lift. Yeah. Um, rest long yeah. enough in between each sets and maybe hit the muscle group twice a week. Like, people overcomplicate this shit so much. Yeah. Like, I feel like strength and conditioning coaches and PTs and everyone, like, we tr- they try and overdo it in terms of trying to sound smart when... Mm the nuts and bolts of the strength conditioning concepts of someone getting fitter and stronger and bigger and everything are quite simple when you boil it down to the basic fundamentals of progressive overload, rest periods, reps and reserve, um, and the exercise selection. Like, they're kind of four big ones. Like, it's kind of simple. 100%.
1: I think there's probably, like – yeah, like you're saying, there's these huge principles that we have to go by, but probably the – like, the person coming to you going – Oh, like, but what about this thing? What about that thing? I think a lot of these people are seeking you know, a faster level of results or maybe some kind of level of instant gratification. So they're like, well, what if I do this tempo or what if, can we do this new exercise that I saw this person doing on their Instagram reel or whatever? Cause I think that particular thing is the key. And it's like, well, none of, none of that really, it's like the icing on the cake. It's like, it doesn't matter a hell of a lot. Really what matters is what you just mentioned was those principles. It's, you know, it's exercise selection. It's your, you know, it's your volume. It's your intensity of effort. Um it's your recovery. Like those are the things we should be hammering home. But of course, you know, like we all know, they're not sexy enough to really create great content around. So people people, you know, seek out the the flashy exercises or the tempos and you know, and, you know, and here we are. This
0: is the problem as well with the, the internet is when people are training for a specific sport, they think that the exercises that they do in the gym should look like the sport when that is not the case at all. Right. The meat and potatoes are still exactly what you should do. You're going to squat, you're going to hinge, you're going to maybe thrust, single leg work, push-pull, upper body vertically and horizontally, chuck some accessory in. You may do some plyometrics if there's a jumping, change of direction-based sport, um, and you also may throw something or um, swing something if you're doing something that's like a hitting sport, right? Right. They're kind of the nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. Sport-specific training is bullshit. All you're doing with the gym is you're trying to create a more resilient athlete so they can stay in the park. You're trying to create more tolerance within muscle tissue, tendon units, etc., to then cross over to the sport. Sport is a very specific skill. So golf, tennis, something like that, that's very specific. To get better at those sports, do that sport, do more of that sport. The gym is a conduit to keep you out there. The gym is a conduit to maybe help you become a little bit stronger so then you can swing the club faster or whatever it is. But if you only do slow training with gym, you'll probably stay slow. Get fast, train fast to get fast. Right. So... The, the sports specific stuff, I tear my hair out about it. It's golf is a golf and tennis, mate. They're hopeless. You see right. all these golf and tennis stuff online because they're two sports that I love personally. Yeah, and they're doing all these crazy things that look kind of like what they do on the tennis court, but there there isn't going to be a crossover. Yeah, 100%. like just get them to swing something really fast and get them right. to jump. Yes, yeah, nice.
1: yeah and almost like you said, build. I love how you mentioned, you know, building resilience in those tissues so that you can stay on the court longer, you know, it's like, okay, let's do the basic strength movements. Like let's get you doing like some level of a, a unilateral, you know, single leg movement, Um, you know, doing these kind of basic strength movements. But then a lot of the, the skill component is developed by actually doing the sport. So it's like, yeah, you utilize the training, to To keep you on the on the on the on the court and to maybe develop some speed, as you mentioned, you can use yeah. power drills. But it should be pretty basic, you know. And then yeah. use your use your time on the court doing actual skill training to get better at your sport. It's like why would you waste time in the gym? trying to mimic what you're doing on the court where you could just go and do that on the court.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. 80% of all programs will probably be the same. Yeah, I agree. And then 20%, the last 20% may be slightly adjusted depending on the sport, right? Mm. So... If someone's I I don't know, a golfer, you get them, like I do a lot of work with speed sticks where they're building their speed and they're trying to swing it as fast as I possibly can. Cool. Am I going to do speed stick work with a footballer? Probably not. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, the last 20% is where you're going to make some slight adjustments. So, um, it's all just a pissing contest online. Unfortunately, it's gotten to that point. Um, I just think there's a lot of idiots out there and we just need to keep things simple Um, If you want to get better at your sport, do sport more. And one thing as well, we're in off-season now for football and a lot of footballers or soccer players or rugby union, whoever it is, if you're in off-season, a lot of people – I saw this by Lockie Wilmot the other day and I completely agree with it and I spruik this with all my footballers. A lot of them don't touch a footy for four or five months and they think that the gym and all the running – is going to make them heaps better at football. Right. Like, yeah, getting fitter might help. Getting a little bit stronger might help. Getting more powerful might help. But they don't touch a football for four or five months and it's a skill-based game, especially in, say, soccer or AFL where it is very skillful, where you've got a mark, kick, hand pass, etc. Keep the football or whatever it is in your hand all year round and that will make you better at the sport, especially if it's a ball sport.
1: Yeah. Hundred percent. That's a great point there. There's, there's like, there's so many, there's so many areas I'd love to chat over with you, Andrew. But I think maybe to round this one out, um, for people listening, how do you, how would you recommend or what advice would you give them when it comes to actually selecting? a physiotherapist mm. to work with if they if they're currently dealing with an issue or that you know they're probably going to deal with one in the future how do they know who's quality and who's not and you know how would they go about their selection
0: this is the hardest question you've asked me today um, <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky it's really hard i think finding a physio that has a strength and conditioning background is very important because the strength and conditioning is imperative if someone doesn't have a really good exercise background well you're probably going to the wrong person if you just get hands on treatment the whole time they're missing the point if they don't educate you on pain and what pain is and that's a whole podcast in itself mm-hmm. that is something that you need so if they're not if they're not looking at the exercise component they're not educating on pain maybe giving you a few tolerating strategies look if they're giving you some hands on treatment for a small period of time, if the consult's an hour and they give you 10 minutes, maybe max 15 of that consult with some hands-on stuff, that's okay. But if they're only giving you hands-on stuff and they're telling you to continue to come back and you're not really doing much in terms of the exercise, pain science, all that sort of stuff, they're missing the point. Mm. Um, I think it is very difficult to find the right person. I think that's why going to people like yourself that have a – you know, a referral system where you can refer out to people that you trust is really important. Yeah. Um, so, it's a tricky one. Yeah, I But, understand. But at the end of the day, I think they're the things to look out for, as we were mentioning before. Um, and... Also, you don't want to go to a churn and burn clinic or a mill clinic where they're just churning out patient after patient after patient of 20 or 30-minute consults. I think an initial consult, no matter the injury, should be at least 45 minutes to an hour. All of hours are an hour. Um, and most of our follow-ups are 45 minutes. And look, if you have to pay more for a clinic like that that do spend more time with you, it's worthwhile. Half an hour, 20 minutes for an initial is just not long enough. I often talk to someone through their subjective for maybe 20, 25 minutes. Yep. And their subjective is them telling me about their injury, especially if it's a chronic pain patient or someone with long standing back pain or neck pain or something like that. It takes me that long to get through their whole history and for them to tell me the story. You also want to look out for a clinician that listens and doesn't just tell you what to do and is a dictator. One other thing is, I would look out for a clinician that tells you what you can do, not what you can't do. Right. Physios are very good at saying you can't do this, you can't do that. I often never say, I never say can't. I often say, these are the things you can do at the moment, and we will build back to these things. So, finding a positive clinician rather than a negative clinician is very important. Or reach out to me, send them. Send me their website maybe. I'll check out their website um, and do your research. Look at the Google reviews, um, chat to people like Jackson and myself and go from there.
1: Yeah, man. You almost need a, need a resource of all the, all the physios in the, in the area of, of who's legit and who's not, huh?
0: Yeah, it's like any profession, you know. Like yeah. The minority make the majority look like idiots and we don't want to all be tarred with the same brush. And there's a lot of amazing physios out there doing phenomenal things. There's a lot of ways to skin a cat when it comes to any health. But at the end of the day, the focus should be what we were just discussing before.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, you know, for for the listeners definitely following Andrew and and his crew on Instagram will probably help out a ton because they put out some solid information um, you know, and and nuanced information as well just as we've been discussing all throughout this episode. So that's probably the next point of call for people as well. Um, to wrap this one up, Andrew, is there any you know, one or two Recommended resources that you have for listeners, or maybe just something that you're you're interested in that you think might be uh, others might be interested in as well. Um, you can let us know, and then you know where people can find you, and then we'll wrap it up, man.
0: Yeah, so you can find me at wildphysiofitness.au. I've got the Australian domain now. Oh, right. um, I've got dot com au as well. Cool. Uh, so everything's on there. Uh, I do do telehealth. If anyone wants to see me via telehealth, even if you're based in New Zealand, we can cool. work out the time zone. Brilliant. Um, so that's an option. I've got eBooks on there. I've got a free app that you can use for your training and nutrition and everything as well hook into that. That is, um, an option. The ebook, Your Body Bible covers nutrition and strength from an evidence-based perspective. Um, it's an absolute beast. It's 168 pages at the moment and close to 60,000 words, but we're doing an update at the moment and it's close to 230 pages now. So hopefully going to look at get that, getting that published in hard copy form in the coming year or so. Um, so there's some options in terms of resources. I think, Um, online, if you do follow me, if I, if you're more interested in this physio side of things and the evidence-based community, have a look at the people that, um, yourself and I follow, um, and even the people that we repost, I think they're the people to probably follow, um so and don't get hoodwinked and sucked into a lot of the crap online um a lot of it is people just spruiking their own services to make themselves look good so look out, look out for yourself and to make sure that you follow people that don't feel make you feel worse you want them to empower you and make you feel positive
1: great way to wrap it up andrew so thanks so much for coming on i absolutely want to uh get you on for a part two there's there's some other stuff around you know manual therapy and and pain that i'd love to discuss with you in more detail so we'll have to set that one up happy to
0: chat anytime i love doing podcasts i think it's a great medium so happy to do it at any time mate
1: As always, friends, if you enjoyed the show, share it with a friend and shoot through a quick review of the podcast on either Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. I've left Andrew's links in the show notes, so be sure to give him a follow and check out his content. For all things vegan nutrition and training coaching, please head straight to veganbody.coach. You'll find out everything that I do there. While my spots for my Fat Loss Mastery program are currently full, I do have a waitlist set up so you can jump on board with that if that's something you're interested in taking part in, but I am currently taking on clients for training only coaching. So if you are ready to do away with poorly structured gym programs from PTs who have no business writing programming or have never read a single book on how to program uh, from an evidence-based perspective, or maybe you're ready to step it up from just winging it when you get into the gym then please get in touch. I'd love to design a personalized program just for you. That is it, team, and I will catch you in the next one.